Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from the United States, Gabon, Chile, France, Brazil, and a see you in hell from Russia. That's the celebration of a dead fascist. Going to start out with the United States with news that I'm unfortunately fairly certain that at least those of you in the United States are already familiar with. There was a mass shooting in Jacksonville, Florida this week, and it's become apparent that the shooter was motivated by right-wing fascist ideologies. Unfortunately, I must also report that this shooting could have been significantly worse. The shooter, a white man who I and many news sources are intentionally avoiding naming in order to prevent him from gaining any notoriety posthumously from these actions, arrived in Jacksonville, Florida with several guns. He had an assault rifle. He had a pistol. These were covered in swastikas. He also had a tactical vest on, a bulletproof vest, and a mask. He also left a manifesto on his computer indicating his fascist leanings. He clearly intended to carry out a shooting spree not where he did, but at a historically black college called Edward Waters University, which is in Jacksonville. He was denied entry to that campus because he was refusing to identify himself to the campus security personnel, and so he turned away and went to a nearby Dollar General, for those of you outside the United States, that is a convenience store of one kind or another. There he killed three people, all of them people of color, and then he killed himself. Law enforcement continues to claim that he was acting alone, that there's no evidence that he was part of a larger group, and that might be the case. You know, it might be the case that he is not affiliated with any larger fascist organization. But I want to remind you that these ideologies don't come from nowhere, right? It is almost certain, like I would bet money on it, that this person attended or frequented forums where people talked about fascist ideas, that he went to fascist websites, that he was part of mailing groups or email chains or Facebook groups or something, right? The man got his ideas from somewhere. And that means that he was a part of a group. He was part of a movement. Now, that doesn't mean that he was part of an organized militia. He very well might not have been. But this is to remind you that even the loneliest of wolves, people like this guy, are not acting alone. They are part of an organized, intentional uptick of right-wing violence, and specifically right-wing violence against people of color and queer people in the United States. Continuing with news about Donald Trump, Donald Trump, the still front-runner in the GOP potential presidential nominees race, has vowed that he would arrest and lock up his opponents if he were elected president of the United States. This is in keeping with his repeated, quote, lock her up chants in the 2016 elections. This was one of his campaign slogans against his then opponent, Hillary Clinton. But Donald Trump seems to be ratcheting up this ideology, ratcheting up this rhetoric right now. And given the legal trouble that he's in, it seems that he might actually mean that he's going to do this, right? Remember that near the end of his presidency, near the end of his presidency in early 2020, he was really looking into weaponizing the legal system, not just in the ways that he already had against people of color, queer people, against immigrants, but also against his political opponents, right? Against other members of the ruling elite whom he was trying to put in jail or trying to tie up with legal problems to prevent them from keeping him out of the White House. Moving on to news in Gabon, the military has seized power there 
after an apparently, or at least supposedly according to them, illegitimate election result from the then incumbent president of Gabon. I mention this because I think it's important to know when there are military coups happening in the world, but I confess that I do not claim to know enough about Gabon and its situation to know if this is a good thing, a bad thing, or a different bad thing. Uh, if somebody has a link to a good expert or a good explainer on this, please let me know. I would really love to hear that and share it with other folks. In Chile, the Chilean government has some good news. Finally, after decades, the Chilean government has formally announced that it is claiming responsibility for the people who were disappeared, that is, executed without explanation or justification or even acknowledgement by the Pinochet dictatorship. This is the first time that the Chilean government has wholesale admitted that it was responsible for these acts. The Pinochet dictatorship in Chile lasted from 1973 until 1990. The cover-up of the killings undertaken by the Pinochet government, which ranged from 1,000 to 3,000 people. Again, there is no official record of the number of people who were killed. Uh, the Pinochet government continued to cover this up for an extremely long time, essentially up until the very recent past. The Chilean government is currently run by the Socialist Party, Gabriel Boric, and he is announcing a big push in the direction of human rights in order to actually find all of the people who were killed by the government. That means actually trying to get records to show the families of those victims what happened to their family members, where and when. What was done with their body, if it was burned, if it was thrown out of a plane into the Andes Mountains, if it was thrown out of a plane into the Pacific Ocean, as many of them were, if it was destroyed by some other means, or if it is buried somewhere and some of their remains might potentially be recovered in order for them to actually have a funeral, which again, these people have not been able to hold funerals with the actual remains of their family members for decades. In the case of children or relatively young people who have dis been disappeared, it's possible that some of these people are still alive. And the hope of that, the really terrifying hope that, that the, the survivors' families hold onto is, is, is one of the most insidious and terrifying parts of how disappearance affects people's lives, how it changes the way a society works. The Chilean government moving in this direction is being recognized by the families of the disappeared as the first step on a very long road to any kind of justice. Prior to this, records about the disappearances were hard to come by. Some of them existed in official places. Some of them were kept by journalists who were, during the dictatorship, targets of disappearance themselves. Other people who kept records, one of the most robust pieces of record-keeping under the dictatorship was done by the clergy, who were shielded from government retribution essentially because the government didn't want the church to get, you know, to, to turn against it. The issue with this move by the Chilean government is that the Chilean military, which is still run by Pinochet loyalists essentially, does not want this. They don't want to release the records that they have. They don't want to talk about the records that they've destroyed. A lot of those people are still in power or they're pensioned and, you know, beloved elders in the Chilean military. Recall that Pinochet was a military dictator, right? He comes from the military. And the military in Chile and the Pinochet dictatorship remain incredibly popular among Chilean voters. This move is a controversial one. And yes, that means that it is controversial for the Chilean government to say, yes, 
we murdered people without justification. We didn't tell anybody that we were doing it. We didn't admit that we were doing it. And we kept people in the dark about what had happened to their loved ones for decades. That is a controversial move. Moving on to France, this is news that is a little bit more speculative. Many people in the French government are talking openly about collaborations between the center-right and the extreme-right. There are predictions in the French government, specifically from the interior minister, that Marianne Le Pen might be the next president of France, that she is really posturing and positioning herself as a center-right candidate. Meanwhile, former center-right president, Sarkozy, has proposed cozying up to the extreme-right, specifically Eric Zemmour, a right-wing provocateur journalist person who has been presenting himself as a potential extreme right-wing candidate and leader in French elections for quite some time. And finally, moving on to Brazil, there is evidence that a former ally of former President Jair Bolsonaro might be cooperating with the government's investigation of him and of Bolsonaro. This aide is somebody I've talked about before. His name is Mauro Cid. He is a member of the Brazilian military and was during the Brazilian government of Jair Bolsonaro. Mauro Cid has recently been seen going into the, you know, essentially investigative offices of the people who are investigating the Bolsonaro government and also Cid's relationship with them. And he was entering that building without a prior, you know, without a previously established appointment. This has led to speculation that he might be pursuing a plea bargain, right? In this case, this may mean that he's like going to talk. He might talk about Bolsonaro. He might say some things that Bolsonaro had him do illegally. Mauro Cid is involved as a potential go-between between Bolsonaro and the people who organized the attempted coup in Brazil earlier this year in January. Mauro Cid faces a number of legal charges against him for these involvements and also for just like embezzlement and money laundering and shit like that. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are talking about Konstantin Rodzaevsky, the leader of the Russian fascist party in World War II. Rodzaevsky was born in the eastern, that is, far East Asian part of Russia, a part known as the Amur Oblast, in 1907. His family was part of the extremely small Siberian bourgeoisie, that means that they were middle-class people, they owned land, they owned businesses. His father was a notary public and a lawyer. His mother was a homemaker, meaning that his father made enough money that his mother didn't have to work. After the Russian Revolution, he and other members of the bourgeoisie retreated. You know, they, they fled away. In this case, they fled the newly established Soviet Union for Manchuria, a part of China that is in the far northeast of China. At the time, however, this was not governed by a Chinese authority, but instead was a Japanese puppet state called Manchukuo, led by the ousted last emperor of China. There, in Manchukuo, Rodzaevsky became the secretary general of the Russian Fascist Party, an organization that merged a number of other smaller fascist organizations in 1931. The Russian Fascist Party was an intentional mimic of Italian and German-style fascism. They adopted the swastika as their emblem. They displayed it in a big neon sign right on the border of the Soviet Union, you know, right on the Siberian border with the Soviet Union. 
And Rodzewski styled himself essentially as Mussolini. You know, he wanted to be a strong man. He had a squad of armed guards around him. Uh, ultimately, the RFP, that is, you know, the Russian Fascist Party, claimed that it had as many as 12,000 members, which is pretty big for the relatively small Russian population in Siberia in general, and also pretty big for the exiled population in Manchukuo itself. Their headquarters was in the city of Harbin, which at the time, like I said, was a part of Manchuria or Manchukuo, but is today in the far northeast of the People's Republic of China. Their real function, you know, because they were supposedly trying to stage a fascist revolution in the Soviet Union, right? They were, they were, they were organizing themselves for potentially being that, you know, maybe they wanted to get contacted by the Nazis if the Nazis beat the Soviet Union. But really what they were was a Japanese puppet. They were armed and outfitted by the Japanese Empire, and they were basically a potential fulcrum against the Soviets. However, remember that throughout most of World War II, basically up until the very end, basically up until the very surrender of the Japanese Empire, the Soviets and the Japanese were not at war. They were hostile, but they were not actually at war, and so the Russian Fascist Party was more of a threat, a potential threat to the Soviet Union, than, you know, something that actually saw any action. Ideologically, the Russian Fascist Party and Rodzaevsky himself were classic 30s fascists. They were anti-Semites, they were anti-communists, and they believed that the power of the people comes from violence and popular will rather than electoral democracy. Rodzaevsky was a virulent anti-communist up until the end of his life when he sort of saw a potential benefit to the dictatorship of Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union. He claimed that Stalin could be a nationalist leader rather than a communist one. This reproachment made it possible for him to think that the Soviet Union was possibly enticing him back. And so in 1945, he was enticed back to the Soviet Union and promised a job at a Russian newspaper as, you know, a potential little bit of an ideological outcast, but, you know, not somebody who was going to be, you know, killed or anything. This, of course, was a ruse, and he and his compatriots were arrested at the border of the Soviet Union in 1946. In the same year, on August 26, he and his compatriots were put on trial, and only a few days later they were executed by the Soviet Union this week in history, August the 30th, 1946. So, Rodzaevsky, we will see you in hell. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H I S T of the Right, and Fascism15. I'm also on Blue Sky at 15 M I N S O F F A S C. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week.